This week on BSD Now, why you should use BSD licensing for your next open source project or product, updates on the FreeBSD Foundation's investment in the Linux Elator, an OpenSense update was released, OpenSense 21.1.5, FreeBSD meetings from the desktop, and that's good to have, running FreeBSD jails with container D 1.5, Markdown, DocBook, and the quest for semantic documentation for netbsd.org, and more in this week's episode of BSD Now. BSD Now, episode 403, The Linuxulator Investment, recorded on the 4th of May 2021. This episode of BSD Now is brought to you by Tarsnap. Go to tarsnap.com slash bsdnow for the online backup for the truly paranoids. Hi, I'm your host, Benedict Reuschling. And I'm Tom Jones. Welcome! Another episode with interesting content, so we should get right into it. Uh, the headlines... This week reads, Why You Should Use BSD Licensing for Your Next Open Source Project or Product by Clara Systems. So Clara keeps writing good articles about the BSD uh, uh, environment, community, software in particular, or any specific programs, ZFS. And this one is about more general open source licensing insights. And they write that the term open source had its origins in the context of software development, designing a specific approach to developing computer programs. Nowadays, however, it stands for a broad set of values. Open source means open exchange, transparency, collaborative, collaborative participation, and development for the benefit of the entire community. Any open source project or product requires licensing. Remember last week's episode where we talked about GPL and some problems there? Uh, this is an interesting uh, connection to that one. Um, so this open source licenses are those that comply with the open source definition from the OSI, uh, what does that mean? In short, they will allow the uh, free use, modification, and distribution of the software. Think of open source licensing as binding contracts allowing the user of a software component to use that software under specific conditions, such as commercial applications. Without a license, the software can simply not be used. There are two main categories for open source licensing that are worth mentioning, copyleft and permissive. The copyleft category of licenses is a method to ensure that any modified version of the copyrighted software or program is also released under the same conditions. Releasing a program under a copyleft license means that the author issues a statement according to which others have the right to use, modify and distribute the work while they maintain the reciprocity of the obligation. In other words, when modifying the software component under a copyleft open source license, the authors have to make sure that their modifications are released under the same license, ensuring they are open for others to use. The permissive license, on the other hand, allows relicensing of derivative works besides permitting the use, modification, and redistribution. Permissive open source licenses foresee minimal restrictions on the use of open source programs. Thus, they may have varying degrees of freedom to use, modify, and redistribute the open source code. This means that permissively licensed software can be modified and that modified version can be licensed in any way that the authors see fit. Then there's a section on the uh, GNU General Public License or GPL. So I think we covered this last week enough, so we can probably skip this. They covered the Apache license, uh, which is a permissive open source software license that was written by the Apache Software Foundation or ASF. Uh, this one is the popular, commonly used open source licenses, which allows its users to freely use the software. 
modify and distribute the software, as well as its modified versions without worrying about royalties. Of course, it goes without saying that users need to observe the terms of the Apache license. Uh, so the first version of this license is actually interesting because it was released in 1995 by the Apache Group, which later came to be known as the Apache Software Foundation. Following the example of Berkeley, which in 1999 accepted the argument raised by the Free Software Foundation and retired the advertising clause, formed the modified BSD license. Apache created the Apache license version 1.1 in the year 2000 in the same way. Removing the advertising clause means that derived products are not required to include attribution in advertising materials, but only in their documentation. So that is a kind of a nice cross-licensing pollination, if you want to call it that. Then they have, of course, the Berkeley software distribution, the BSD licenses. So those uh, licenses are a family of permissive open source software licenses that impose minimal restrictions on the use and distribution of the software. The BSD license family includes the original BSD license or the four clause license and its two variants, the modified BSD license or three clause license and the simplified BSD license, uh, which is called a two clause license. Maybe one day we will have a one clause license. <laughs> um, the BSD licensing model allows the free modification and distribution of the software's code in the source or binary format, given that a copy of the copyright notice, list of conditions and the disclaimer are retained. And then there's a little bit of a history part. Then they also list the MIT licensing, which is also very popular. And then there's a section on FreeBSD and BSD slash MIT licensing, which is more than just software freedom. Working with FreeBSD is special. It can feel like a match. Its different components have been put together nicely. You can easily deal with tuning and configuration. And over many years, its tools have been developed and improved into what makes FreeBSD so great to work with. BSD style licenses bring value to companies in commercial use cases as they are compatible with proprietary licenses and offer flexibility. These licenses only place minimal restrictions and are not a legal concern, unlike copyleft licenses. So they talk a little bit about um, the benefits of having these. And in conclusion, uh, you can, talk, of course, read the whole um, article at Clara's website. The conclusion reads, however, the new smart washing machine, which has network connectivity, so it can send a notification to your smartphone when your laundry cycle is complete. Really? Do we need that? Um, would you prefer the manufacturer use the mature BSD licensed network stack or wrote their own in order to avoid the licensing entanglements of the GPL? We have determined that licensing is a huge and complex topic and how necessary it is to choose the right license for your project. Considering that most developers rely on open source components, it is of great importance to understand the basics in open source licensing and, do, and choose the right license. Yeah, that's yeah always an interesting um, way of Clara. You know, they also probably have a couple of uh, developments made in-house or for customers, and that's always a question. Um, will this also be a part of the BSD license? And I guess most customers will not have a problem with that, especially uh, since it's not so important, I guess, that it's um, not just competitive advantage, but also provides value to other people using it. There's, de there's definitely a, a bias on show from Clara, um, but it's one that we agree with. Um, yeah, it's, it's, it's interesting to think about the considerations if you're building something much larger, um, because a lot of open source stuff is just pulled in without thinking about it. Uh, one number they have is 27% of open source packages are MIT licensed which is a big chunk to be very permissive and is a great sign.
Mm. Okay, next up we have a, an article from the, the FreeBSD Foundation. Unfortunately, it does not have an author byline, so I can't tell you who wrote it because I think they're very funny. Um, this is a, an update on the FreeBSD Foundation's investment in the Linux Ulator. And it starts, what is the Linux Ulator? Dr. Emmett Brown's similar-sounding flux capacitor from the movie Back to the Future bridged the dimensions of time, uniting the past, present, and future for the McFlies. Similarly, the FreeBSD Linux Ulator project also bridges dimensions. In our case, these are Linux and FreeBSD. Linux Ulator provides Linux ABI, Application Binary Interface, compatibility so FreeBSD users can run many unmodified Linux applications and libraries without the need for virtualization or emulation. It provides the binaries with kernel interfaces identical to those provided by a Linux kernel, similar to the way 32-bit FreeBSD binaries run on top of 64-bit FreeBSD kernel. Since Linux Ulator does not rely on virtual machines or emulation, these apps often run as fast and sometimes even faster on, Freeb on FreeBSD as on Linux. Linux Ulator uses. It might surprise you to learn that the initial motivation Sorry, it might not surprise you to learn the initial motivation for the Linux Ulator was to play the, dame, the game Doom on FreeBSD. <laughs> I understand this draw. From this noble beginning in FreeBSD 2.1, which is 1995 for those keeping score at home, uses of the compatibility tool now range from desktop applications like Steam, Tor, and Firefox to any number of server workloads like databases, development languages, and caches. Uh, Linux Ulator is not without controversy, but let's be honest, what an open source is. Uh, in a recent online discussion, some community members disagreed that continued Linux Ulator improvement matters for the growth of FreeBSD. One reader commented that ongoing investment in Linux Ulator would simply encourage people to run the Linux versions of apps, and thereby diminish interest in FreeBSD versions. However, this argument was overpowered by a counter-argument like this one. I use FreeBSD exclusively for my development, but there are a few pieces of proprietary software that are only available as Linux binaries, like FPGA toolchains, and having a viable Linux ABI layer means that I do not need to resort to having an entire second operating system in a VM or another machine. Um, the article then goes on to talk about the, the history of the foundation's development of Linux Ulator. Um, and they say, recognizing its importance, the FreeBSD Foundation eagerly approved two separate grant applications from longtime FreeBSD contributor and community member Edward Tomas Nayak. I think it's Tomas. Okay. But, Would you like to yeah. say his entire name? <laughs> no, guarantee. Napirala? Ah, okay. I wasn't going to manage that. Uh, in 2019 and 2020 to update and improve Linux later. We caught up with Edward working from his home in Cambridge, UK, to learn more about his work. Edward's interest in Linux Ulator came, uh, it began a few years ago when conducting preliminary research on how to run Android apps on FreeBSD as part of Robert Watson's team at the University of Cambridge. Edward soon discovered that this goal, albeit fascinating, and yes, uh, University of Cambridge smartphone would be eminently on brand, was a bit too ambitious given the state of the Linux Ulator code. Nevertheless, the value of the binary interface project was immediately apparent to Edward, who saw some important ways he could make it more stable and useful. This wasn't Edward's first brush with Linux Ulator. Prior to his Android initiative, the FreeBSD Foundation contracted with Edward to review and help integrate 64-bit compatibility from intrepid Linux Ulator contributor Dimitri Shagin. Uh, even though it was a significant patch, Edward recalls that the code was very good and the review went quite quickly. 
Although the review itself did not take long, the patch had sat awaiting review for some months. Had the foundation not stepped in to enlist Edward's assistance, there was a feeling the Linux related project could have stalled. In the process of working on Android apps for FreeBSD, Edward realized that there were many, often undocumented, steps needed to get Linux Relator running. This motivated him to submit his 2019 grant proposal to keep Linux Relator from regressing. Uh, and it goes on to talk about how he discovered there's no good way to, to trace Android, um, and by extension, Linux programs in FreeBSD, and so they added support for, for S-Trace. Um, and then it has a lovely quote from uh, the GhostBSD project. Um, Ask users of the most recent FreeBSD-based GhostBSD desktop OS, they'll say, mission accomplished. Notable to GhostBSD uh, 2011-28 are fixes to the Linux related support from FreeBSD that allows for running Linux binaries on BSD. With the fixes in this release, there should be better performance for running the Linux build of Steam. That should help in allowing more Linux games to run atop GhostBSD. Um, and they've written they've written quite a long article here, and it, it's a great history, and it looks like there's some great steps forwards with Linux related support, and especially making it much easier to use in the future. Oh yes. So this is all made possible by donating to the FreeBSD Foundation, sponsoring work like this, and um, making sure that someone can take care of a certain piece that has been maybe neglected or needs to be implemented in the first place. And so that's one way the FreeBSD Foundation uh, helps the FreeBSD project. Very great work. And I think a lot of people would appreciate um, further updates or like that they can now play their games that they wouldn't be able to before. <laughs> In the news roundup, we have updates from OpenSense. They have a new version out, uh, OpenSense 21.1.5. And let's look at what they have in store for us. They write in their release notes that, uh, well, good day, everyone, of course. This is mainly a security and reliability update. There are several FreeBSD security advisories and updates for third-party tools such as curl. The historic BSD installer has been replaced by a scriptable alternative based on the readily available BSD install uh, bundled with the base system. And yes, this brings ZFS installer support into the upcoming 21.7 release. On the development side, the migration of Falcon 4 with PH uh, framework is now underway and brings improved UI or API uh, responsiveness. One of the remaining roadmap goals is the migration to PHP 7.4, which can be carried out after said framework update is complete and released. Here are the full patch notes. So they made some changes to the system, return authentication error th uh, errors for radios also, uh, better logic for serial console options, minus H and capital D, reorder the loader conf settings to let tunables override all, um, performance enhancement for local sync accounts, and in the firewall space, remove IP addresses in kernel to uh, for a forest gateway rule. Use tables in the shaper to avoid breaking IPFW with too many addresses. Uh, copy and paste for alias content, contributed by Kulikov-8. Okay. Um, they improved the loopback visibility also on the firewall. A uh, couple of updates in the firmware section. Fix a bug with subscription read from the mirror URL. Uh, separate UU. Well, once again, separate update error for the forbidden part and update error if upstream core package is missing yet installed. A couple of plugins got updates to latest versions or to newer versions at least, as well as newer ports for 
uh, curl as mentioned, uh, DNS masquerading, uh, expat hyperscan, monit, nettle, PHP seclip, and package 1.16.3. Cool. Always good having uh, updated versions of firewalls and uh, traffic shaping. Okay. Next up, we have uh, another uh, OpenSense story. Um, uh, the topic is OpenSense and hardened BSD are parting ways. Uh, and this is a story from the OpenSense team. Dear all, during the last six years, we have followed a strategy where we included hardened BSD patches on top of FreeBSD to construct the operating system on which OpenSense relies. Most of our system has been FreeBSD based combined with security patches and more security centric defaults for different areas of our system. Since most of the surrounding world when supporting BSD operating systems in FreeBSD, we do value a great interoperability with FreeBSD since that is where the general developer community is focused on. This is not a change of strategy, but merely an explanation. Over time, we have seen that building on top of hardened BSD not always guarantees interoperability, which means that issues we or our users run into are not always very widespread and have the tendency to complicate tracking issues. Since the hardened BSD team is quite small, chances are chances that issues are caught before we run into them are unfortunately not very substantial. From the time from time to time, we considered leaving hardened BSD. At some point in time, there was practically no movement. But when things seemed to have picked up again last year, we decided to wait to see if it would improve the situation. Also, because FreeBSD did not incorporate some of the security enhancements which we've been delivering since 2015, with FreeBSD 13 released and the gaining interest for security, we think it is now time to change our strategy a bit and focus our efforts further on FreeBSD to help improve security as much as we can. In time, there is a risk that hardened BSD additions are less compatible with new FreeBSD security features. For this reason, we are aiming to incorporate FreeBSD 13.x into OpenSense 22.1 in January 2022. Since Sean has been a core team member due to the involvement in our operating system, we decided to remove him from our core team as well. Obviously, we wish Harden BSD and Sean a bright future. Maybe in time, more of the original concepts and ideas will land in FreeBSD. We as OpenSense remain focused on security, but also believe more eyes help improve security as we have seen our code base, as well as all the people involved in different areas of our project. Um, and there's just a quick follow-up as well behind that. As Sean earlier reacted to some people, we parted in good faith and we thank him for the time we worked together and wish him and, Harden, and the Harden BSD project the best. There's no question about that. Mm -hmm. no, interesting. Uh, we, we regularly cover uh, updates both in OpenSense and Harden BSD. So it's, um, you will definitely hear more from both projects, uh, even though they parted ways. Then next, we have FreeBSD meetings on the desktop which is interesting you know we're all still in lockdown and meeting face to face is difficult so video conferencing is the next best thing and this is um from uh i think it's Adrian IS, the main, yeah he's maintaining um among other things uh, the freebsd um kde port not alone but with uh, help and he has also involvement in other projects so he's quite busy so he writes FreeBSD on the desktop is a whole stack. X11, QT, KDE Frameworks, KDE Plasma, and KDE Gear, and Wayland, and Poplar, and GDK. Oh my. Um, or 
Ooh, bye. Um, <laughs> a dozen or more people work on various parts of the FreeBSD desktop stack. Together, we're desktop at, and in various sub-constellations, KDE at, and X11 at, and the like. Because there's, of course, if you can't get X, if you have a problem in X11, you always have to um, coordinate with some of the other desktops that uh, are affected by that, and vice versa. So um, we collaborate via the ports tree and via Bugzilla, but it's also good to see each other sometimes. Yes. The team is spread out across the world, so most effective is video call. We're recently, we've recently started a <laughs> nice. We've recently started to stealthily use KDE's meeting infrastructure for this, rather than proprietary solutions. As you can see, I've quickly introduced KDE. Uh, this is a registered German um, oh, association, I think it's the product or the translation. So if people come together with a common purpose, they can form this uh, group and it's very popular in German. So KDE EV is such an uh, association. That board, uh, best practices, which means taking a screenshot of the doodles. That's beastie in a purple top hat. Yeah, if you go into the to the website we provide in the show notes, you can see it uh, at the end of the meeting to document our effectiveness. Yes, someone is always talking and the rest is just doodling. That's <laughs> a sign of productivity <laughs> of sorts. Okay, so let's read the rest. Um, he really needs to sort out his headset issues on FreeBSD, massive audio feedback and Logitech USB headsets. Okay, so you can stick it to one platform. Um, upcoming or ongoing issues in the KDE corner are Qt 5.5 web engine, Python build updates in general, Qt 6, Loic has a build, but it's crashy, um, Plasma 5.21, uh, system settings is crashy, unusable, as is system monitor. Then CMake 3.20.1 in Xperon and Plasma Wayland. So I think he also recently tweeted about having it working, KDE on Wayland on FreeBSD. So we'll probably see more about that. So it seems we'll be keeping busy for the foreseeable future. Yes, it's great news. And uh, I like that the pandemic didn't keep those people away and still made it possible to collaborate this way. So that's very appreciated. And if people would like to join those groups and offer their help, they will always be happy to get a little bit of help. Could be testing, could be uh, running test stuff and finding bugs or um, providing code even. Uh, they will probably very happy to get some additional hands to help. Next in the news, we have uh, an article following up from last week's uh, article on Run J from Samuel Karp, and it is running FreeBSD jails with Container D 1.5. Container D 1.5.0 was released today and now works on a new operating system, FreeBSD. <laughs> this new release includes a series of patches, 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, which allow ContainerD to build, enable the native and ZFS snapshotters, and use a compatible runtime like RunJ. I'm really excited about this, uh, Samuel writes. It's awesome that only a small amount of work was needed to make ContainerD compatible with FreeBSD, and that so much of it worked straight out the box, and with a runtime for jails. Uh, ContainerD's powerful APIs can now be used to manage FreeBSD's native process isolation capability. In the rest of this post, we'll take a, a look at how to use ContainerD on FreeBSD. I like exclamation hmm. points. Uh, and so he talks about building ContainerD from source because it's it's not yet in ports because it was released uh, on the 3rd of May. Um, and he also talks about building RunJ. And while RunJ is in ports, it's still being developed. And so while you're following the head, it's best to to run the, the fastest software. 
Um, Container D can run without an explicit configuration, but the ZFS snapshotter does require a bit of setup. Um, Container D uses ZFS snapshotters to provide the layered file systems that enable containers to have efficient copy and write storage and fast startup. The ZFS snapshot leverages ZFS to provide these capabilities and works well on FreeBSD. And he talks about how to how to use this, um, how to run Container D, and then he shows the whole process for running your your first uh, jail FreeBSD jail with Container D. Finally, Samuel concludes. Container D on FreeBSD and the RunJ runtime are both very much experimental and a work in progress. While the functionality demonstrated in this blog post works, there are still lots of missing features. You can find continuing development work in both the Container D repository and the RunJ repository. I also continue to post here on this blog as more exciting developments occur. I hope you're as excited as I am about the future of Container D and the OCI ecosystem on FreeBSD. Sorry, FreeBSD. <laughs> this is really cool. This is a this is a, a remarkably quick pro- progress to get um, the thing that we spoke about uh, just in the last show to now have Container D going. Yeah, yeah, it's a nice connection to how it, things evolve from one week to the next, and so uh, that's a nice way of seeing updates and that people are um, working on this. Very great, and I'm sure we'll be be talking more as Samuel writes blog posts about progress here. Yes. Um, that's why it's also nice if you're a developer, you also write about your progress so people can see, hey, there's something happening if you have time. It could also be tweets or other microblogging services so that people know about this, you get the word out, and who knows who comes along and helps and offers testing or any kind of other um, contribution. So you're not alone in your little dark corner in the in the cellar. You can always get help from the outside. Um, let's check uh, the next article, which is about Markdown, DocBook, and the quest for semantic documentation on netbsd.org. So they seem to have a similar issue that uh, we had in FreeBSD for the longest time until we did uh, the switch um, over the Christmas break or the uh, year change last year about switching to a different documentation tool chain and also uh, involving the website. But let's go with this article here. Um, yeah, this is a docbook and the NetBSD website. Recently, uh, they've been doing a lot of maintenance of the NetBSD website. It contains a boatload of documentation, much of which was originally written in the 2000s. Uh, it has some special requirements. It has to work in text-based web browsers like links, or maybe even without any working browser installed at all just FTP or downloading plain text over HTTP. Naturally, the most important parts are static, suitable for starting from the standard NetBSD HTTP server, which runs from INETD by default. Most of the NetBSD website is written in a language called docbook-xsl. This would be an unpopular choice today, as most people don't like writing XML. Yeah, I've been there, done that. Um, <laughs> we view it as old-fashioned or don't see the point when you can just write HTML. Convincing developers to write XML is difficult, yes, uh, when they can submit Markdown to a wiki and accomplish similar HTML output. However, it has some advantages. It provides semantic information far beyond what something like Markdown or even HTML provides. It understands chapters, sections, tables of contents, and can be easily converted into book form. For example, the NetBSD guide is available in PDF, PostScript, and plain text for offline reading. And that's what we also had in FreeBSD. We had all some, uh, all those kinds of custom modifications, like custom entities and things like that. So all that needed to be uh, considered when we did the conversion. 
Okay, continuing. Uh, there was an attempt to convert large parts of the guide and website to wiki-ish markdown, but it was eventually reverted due to the inability to generate a nice book, uh, which some people strongly objected to, and loss of syntax and versatility. So there's an example, so you can see what this looks like. I've seen this way too long with my doc bit, so <laughs> I, I just scrolled further down. Markdown. Uh, when they started programming, they were unaware of things like GitHub, or they didn't exist yet. They're not sure. They learned to code in the computer game hacking community, and the most common code distribution method was forum post attachments. We were doing free software without knowing or caring about the free software movement. When I started working on NetBSD, uh, it was an easy transition. We were sending patches via email instead of forum posts. Oh, yes. So my first encounter with Markdown was on social networking sites like Reddit, where new users frequently visibly struggle with things like syntax and whitespace, and emergency edits to posts are common. Languages like docbook-xsl and mdoc have much clearer rules on what causes whitespace to appear. You clearly denote paragraphs with directives. And there's a bit more information about you know, how Markdown is done, and so now they think about we could convert the docbook XSL to markdown and have the essentials of emphasis, code, lists, and headings, but lose the rest. So there's um, a section for output of code or output from the screen. So this is an issue or it's not carried over into the new markup world and other similar things. So when they first encountered markdown, they thought some parts of it were obviously good, but others made them pine for being B code. Ah, yes, that's another forum software uh, internal coding or for marking up sections. Uh, in their opinion, it's an acceptable language for the simple formatting of forum posts, but simply not useful enough for technical documentation. So what else is there? And there is ASCII doc. ASCII doc can be thought of a doc book answer to Markdown, although it predates it by several years. Comparing it to Markdown, some aspects of the syntax differ, and it's suited to printed documentation rather than just HTML conversion. Many more features are standardized, including tables, examples, cross-references, tables of contents, and various uh, macros. So from an initial study, they don't think ASCII doc includes built-in syntax for distinguished things like variable names, user input, shell prompts, or so on, but it is possible to apply certain styles. In this case, they've used the file name and var name styles. I think that's what uh, FreeBSD also used. And so they provide an example how each of these will look like. There's another section of on rough MDoc, which is another format that provides an equivalent amount of semantic information. And most NetBSD developers are familiar with it already. Um, it's very old and very simple format, but a very powerful one. And they go a bit about um, how that is used. So you would typically see this in the source code for man pages, or use this if you have if you have to document your your software creation in in a man page. And why shouldn't you? And so that's why you use these. Um, these formats or variations of that. Other formats in the uh, last bit of that article is um, other formats suited to technical documentation exist, such as restructured text or RST, which is not a markdown-like format with many more features useful for technical documentation and document generation. Um, they would consider these, but for the special case of converting NetBSD website, it is useful to have A, an easy transition from DocBook XSL, and B, familiarity to existing developers. Yes, if you don't carry over the developers, it's kind of difficult to make them use the new software. So that's the, the social part of that change. It's regrettable that while there are formats with very similar syntax to Markdown, they are more suited to technical documentation. Markdown is often the only option that gets considered. What, what did FreeBSD move to? So that's um, ASCII doc. 
uh, with a bit of um, extra syntax, but not too much. And so they first focused on making it work um, and convert a lot of documents that we already had into the new format because you don't want to rewrite all the handbook, right? And so then we can now, in the second step, think about what else do we need, what things are missing, what didn't carry over properly. Um, but overall, I think people adopted well enough so that they are now writing new content for sections that were previously uh, not touched because it was too difficult. Yeah, I think the, the difference between all these solutions and, and Markdown is if you just type into a Markdown document, it, it's very good for composition. Uh, whereas if you if you look at this article and you look at the Roth example, um, I, I, I don't know if you can imagine how difficult it is to deal with paragraphs of text and you have to do formatting <laughs> yeah. as like an entirely different pass. Um, and part of that is the linting tools want you to do this, but it's um, it's fine for a man page, which is something that you sort of write once, um, mm. normally once you know what it's going to do, and it's all about presentation. But if you were to be writing lots of documentation, so there's lots of text, it really makes it hard. Yeah, I know what you you mean. I, I'm, I'm regularly uh, going into the review system and fixing the same things in man pages uh, because that's what I review mostly over and over again. I mean, people nowadays use linters more um, and they those typically find those errors. But things like, hey, if you have a, a sentence stop in a sentence, you need to do a line break into the next line. So that is always something that I find if, if it's code contributed. And it's a minor thing, um, but it's thing, things like that people could adopt one day and I'm fairly sure they will or that a linting tool would be able to detect and um, provide you with feedback once you check in your in your updated version or your initial patch. Yeah, I, I definitely think ASCII doc is a, a big positive step forward. The problem with Roth and, and XML is it's very disconnected from what the, the markup does to what the output is. Whereas mm, it's very yeah. easy to keep all of the markup in your head from markdown because it's just some stars get the stars wrong okay it's bold rather than italic but you're not you're not a million miles away from what you intended yeah and we're not i mean docbook is good and as they said in writing a book or a whole like section subsection sub subsection and such um but that's not what we typically do these days right we're not publishing a yearly version of the FreeBSD handbook uh, like we did in the past and so People want to have a quicker way of writing documentation. Everyone hates writing documentation to a certain degree, uh, and spe especially developers. Once they've finished, their, it's it was hard enough to write the software in the first place. Now I have to document it, um, and so they found ways to make it less painful for them in ways with things like Markdown and the popularity of GitHub and the integration there made it even more popular. But of course, you lose a lot of information in there, like marking up certain sections. Of course, you can also overdo it like, oh, this needs to be a var name. No, this needs to be a file name. And the file name could have a directory tag attached to it. Um, of course, you can always super uh, go into this very deeply. Um, but yeah, if you convert from one document format to another, you always have to consider the implications and what you will lose and also what you would gain. Uh, but I think now we're on a better platform now that the website has also used the same uh, background because historically the FreeBSD website was very intertwined and it still is with the uh, the documentation part simply because the website 
um, included parts of the handbook and so they were very closely interconnected and the whole building blocks were um, very closely together. And now we have a way to kind of independently de uh, develop each uh, of those websites separately from the rest of the documentation and that allows you know the website to be updated more frequently. Whereas in the past we had to like, eh, it's difficult, you have to learn docbook. And we had a couple of web design firms approach us and say, hey, we cannot easily update your website to the 2020 design. And we're like, yeah, but do you know how our backend infrastructure looks like and how big is uh, the integration into docbook? And that is typically enough to drive any web uh, development company away from <laughs> such a project. <laughs> because that's what they also don't do normally. But if you have this legacy website that has been around before the um, yeah the Stone Age and people kind of expect the FreeBSD website as ugly as it may be to work in a certain way and they find the, uh, the things they are working or they're looking for, um, that's what they're used to. And when you change that, then it's like, oh no, you cannot change the familiar website of freebsd.org. But eventually it has to be done and the longer it rots, the, the worse it gets. And I'm now very happy that we uh, found someone who did all the, the work who, uh, to convert all that and help us getting into a more modern infrastructure. Okay, that was <laughs> the, the added bits to those. Um, let's look at what else do we have? Oh yes, we have feedback and questions. But before we go into this, we should mention our sponsor this week, which is Tarsnap. Tarsnap has been providing us with support for a number of episodes and we're happily using their service and we're kind of, uh, well, the best advocates for that because the best way to advertise for something if you use it yourself and are very convinced about it. And that's really true for Tarsnap because it's, if people just think about it, it's just a backup service like any other but it's a very useful one and has some extra bits that the other backup services don't provide. Everyone could give you a backup service and say, yeah, you can store your files here on my cloud and we provide you with the client and with all the software. You just drop your files into a folder of sorts and we'll take care of the rest, right? Well, but you don't see anything what's happening in the background, what they do with your files, whether they scan it, whether they uh, make certain... I don't know, modifications to it. Probably not. You would see that. Um, but you don't know about this. You you have not so much transparency. Whereas with Tarsnap, you can look at the source code of the whole uh, infrastructure or not the infrastructure, but at least the, the client bits and um, how it's built and what kind of um, components there are to work together. And of course, it's encrypted. Of course, it's encryption. of Every backup service gives you uh, in their slogan or in their advertisements, yes, we have encryption. But is that encryption that they can easily um, unencrypt if they want to? Or is it like Tarsnap does it? They say we have encryption and we provide it to you, but we cannot get to your data if you lose the key or destroy the key. And we can't even as the provider get back to your data, if, even if we wanted to help you retrieve those um, backed up bits. Uh, we cannot do that. And that is also a benefit of Tarsnap. They say, if you're truly paranoid, you can use us and make sure if you don't want anyone to restore your files, we can make sure that we are not able to do that. And that's done with the personal key, which is used to encrypt your data. And if you hold the key and you're the only person and you should never give that key away, no one can get to your files. They're encrypted and they leave your disk or your computer 
over the network only in the encrypted form. And only they are unencrypted once they are on your host, if you need to restore. And then the unencryption happens. Nothing in between is uh, not encrypted. And it's also sitting in the um, storage. They are using AWS for that. And of course, it's taking a long time un until maybe you need to restore on a very bad day your files. And the longer it sits there, it could happen that someone might be able to unencrypt it without you even knowing it. But with Tarsnap's encryption, I'm not uh, convinced that this will happen likely um, because Tarsnap is uh, a very uh, thoughtful service and thought through service, how it's done, how it's how the encryption is happening, the compression on top of that. And I think this is um, a very reliable service and thought through enough that you can really trust that nothing is happening out of the ordinary to your files or to your data. So check out Tarsnap. It's a very low pricing model and you can start easily by downloading a client or um, finding everything that you need to know in the documentation section and just get started making backups. Never know when you need one or um, the more backups you have, the better it is. All right, now it's time for the feedback and questions. We receive happily your feedback and we will incorporate further feedback into the show. Uh, if you don't receive any, then this will be a very short segment, but luckily we have enough this week. If you have anything to ask us, anything that you always wanted to know from us or from Tom maybe that you don't know so much yet, uh, send all of this to feedback at bsdnado.tv. Also articles that you think we shall, uh, shall cover or are interested in because it's BSD related. Anything goes to that email address. So first uh, is Alrecor with an interesting FreeBSD find. Okay, so that goes. Saw a company using FreeBSD to replace Windows CE in industrial automation. Thought you might find it interesting. Oh yes, this is, this is the back of... Um, Folks, yeah, we are in contact with them and actually they contacted us because we didn't know about them before. So that is Backoff Automation. And they have, uh, I think they're basically located in uh, Germany, but they have like um, manufacturing plants and other company uh, offices around the world. And they're using FreeBSD for their TwinCat BSD. And yeah, this is a nice service. And as you said, this is a Windows X, uh, a CE industrial automation software replacement of sorts and they're using freebsd internally yeah and they um they gave a, a great presentation at the freebsd vendor summit uh in november december last year and there should be a link to that presentation in, in the show notes and it shows exactly how they use how they use freebsd and, and how they've moved to it they're very uh nice to work with and they uh sponsored some freebsd work through the freebsd foundation and uh, we hope to contribute uh, or to continue this collaboration as well. And so this is a nice way of seeing um, an industry need uh, for an open source project. And they also probably choose FreeBSD because of the licensing and other benefits of the community. And so um, this is a nice example of, oh, we didn't know you were using our software in this kind of specific um, industry automation, which you would normally not uh, find BSD normally. Yeah, the best thing from that presentation as well is the reason that they went with FreeBSD is one of the directors of the company was a FreeBSD desktop user many, many years ago. Huh. 
yeah so you can see uh it always uh, comes back to you in unexpected ways and if you have good experience in the past then you might remember and try it uh, with the product or service that you're building and you never know what uh, works or what comes out of that cool so thanks for letting us know or the the wider bsd community listening to the podcast um next up is sven with feedback so sven writes Hi everyone, I love the show and learn a lot from it. Oh great. I run OpenBSD on all my servers and workstations. For wireless, I have been using commercial hardware, but after Ubiquity's recent data breaches and cover-ups, I decided to switch my wireless to FreeBSD if possible. As far as I know, OpenBSD can't run multiple SSIDs, but I am hoping FreeBSD can. FreeBSD was very easy to set up on a PC Engine's APU2 and have one wireless network set up but haven't figured out multiple SSIDs yet. I've been intrigued by your discussions of ZFS, so I have a simple ZFS stripe on it and plan to learn more. For the future, I hope I can have FreeBSD for all my wireless access points while keeping all my other equipment on OpenBSD. So if you if you used FreeBSD uh, on the desktop a few years ago, you might have noticed a very infuriating change where we went from your wireless card coming up as the device um, like RTWN0 um, to you having to have an extra step where you had to create the the wireless LANs from the, the device. This is when we added infrastructure to do virtual access points on top of wireless interfaces. Uh, and what this enables is running multiple SSIDs. Um, I think this depends heavily on the chipset that you are using. And so without knowing what that is, I'm not sure if it is supported or not. Um, I would look at the man pages for, for wireless. Um, I have to go to a FreeBSD machine, though. Um, um, to get more information. And I'm not sure what the best place to look would be. Um, there might be something in the handbook. Yeah, I think there is something about having multiple SSIDs. Have you used that uh, on a FreeBSD box? Uh, I have never used FreeBSD as a, an access point. Um, but I'm fairly sure it's possible. So there are some changes um, planned at least or coming down the line uh, in the wireless stack because people still say, oh, we cannot use the whole 802.11n uh, speed uh, provided because FreeBSD hasn't had uh, much development there. Um, but the FreeBSD Foundation... Um, has picked this up, may in the future provide um, better networking. I cannot say much more because nothing has happened yet, um, but we are act active, actively working of having someone work on that. So we will announce this and you will hear it on the show as well. If, if you know um, a good guide for setting up multiple SSIDs on FreeBSD or if you want to write one, um, we would love to hear about it and then we could talk about it on the show. Yes, excellent. This might be a how-to you have found or um that you've written and so yeah we would be happy to cover that in another episode but yeah i like that approach that you uh, still don't abandon openbsd completely and use uh, freebsd for that specific purpose or uh, looking a little bit more into uh, zfs and yeah no one is preventing you from using both systems it's it's kind of a nice way and if you're used to the bsds then you can carry over a lot of uh the, the knowledge and the the way to use it uh, from one to the other. Then uh, we have uh, Robert with a firewalling question. 
See, you always get the episodes where the networking questions are asked. <laughs> uh, that's not intentional, but it's good to have you on board for that. Um, uh, Robert writes here, Hi, Benedict and Alan. I've been looking at... Tom, of course. I've been looking at some firewalling needs, and rather than going immediately to commercial off-the-shelf solutions, I thought I would look at some BSD options as well. Excellent. I don't need a bunch of the fancy next-gen features often sold. I just need basic layer 3 or 4 firewalling and IDS and IPS abilities. Throughput is not my biggest issue, though rather I need a lot of connections. Ideally, I would need a box that could do about 4 million connections without rolling over and degrading performance. I looked around some and saw a few references to how to do things like limit connection counts and similar, but nothing that really discussed sizing a system to reach different throughput or connection limits. I hope you have some recommendations on good resources for building a solution on one of the BSDs and sizing the hardware to match the performance mentioned earlier. Love listening to the show and appreciate your thoughts. I, I did not have recommendations on doing this, and so I asked my uh, source for all uh, router and firewalling knowledge, Christoph Provost. Um, and, and he said very flippantly immediately, go and ask NetGate, um, which is, is actually very good advice. Um, mm. The the size of the connection table is very big, but he thinks that uh, a, a router set up with maybe 16 or 32 gigabytes of RAM would be okay and not have any issues. Um, you might need to do some manual tuning, so it might not auto-tune up to be able to handle these sizes, but with tuning, it should be fine. Um, if we assume that not not a high rate means about 10 gig a bit rather than like 100 gig a bit, then it should probably mm-hmm. be okay. Uh, Christoph says from his latest benchmarking that, that PF is very happy to do 18 million packets per second these days. And that's him testing on one of his boxes at home, which I know are very large. Uh, with 100 gigabit cards. Um, But really, I think going and asking um, NetGate what they would recommend for your use case is a great way to support a vendor of FreeBSD uh, and get uh, expert advice from there because they will be able to tell you which line of machines they have and that will help you figure out if you want to buy one from them or if you want to build your own router um, for this problem. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's good because they have the experience and the the user base to have... um seen this kind of workload before or that need and they can say um, what kind of hardware you need or what kind of uh, things you need to take care of to make sure to have this uh, throughput or this uh, millions of users cool excellent uh i think that is the episode for this week unless you have anything left no i think that's us okay excellent then we hope you liked this episode and uh, we, of course, uh, wait until next week to have you back listening to us or the other way around, <laughs> one way or the other. Uh, we will be back with fresh BSD content and new stories, as always, with your favorite BSD show. Bye.